One of the ushers at Caesar's Palace that's working security at the event hears the music and he turns to me because I'm, I'm in the lobby, obviously, you know, writing. And he turns to me and he goes, oh man, is that the new Top Gun movie? Is it coming out in theaters? When is it coming out? Are they showing it? The guy got excited just hearing the music. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's so wonderful. It's really what we've been talking about. The importance of connecting theatrical releases back to a general audience. This is the Box Office Podcast. I am Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America exclusively dedicated to covering theatrical exhibition, proudly in publication since 1920. And I am joined once again by my co-host, Rebecca Pauly, deputy editor of Box Office Pro. Today is Friday, August 27th, and CinemaCon 2021 is finally over. Rebecca, it's done. We're going home. It was so amazing to see people in person who we've only seen through Zoom chats over the last year and a half. This was only my second CinemaCon, and my goodness, the veterans in this community who have been going to it for years and years since the Show West era, I tip my hat to you because, God bless it, this is exhausting. <laughs> it's an endurance sport covering this event, especially when you're one of the publications really focused on covering this community, the exhibition community, everything happening with the movie theater industry. Guys, there's no daily schedule to go over to today. We're really just gonna tackle the final day of the event, which happened yesterday on Thursday. It included a major filmmaker slamming day and date releases. It included Tom Cruise riding a motorcycle off a cliff and studio presentations from Lionsgate and Paramount. But before we get started, here is a message from our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by Dolby Laboratories. Differentiate your offering with the Dolby Auditorium packages, which allow you to tailor the right solution for your business needs to create a spectacular experience for moviegoers. The Dolby Auditorium packages are bundled to provide considerable cost savings and have an optional, low-cost, extended warranty, significantly reducing the total cost of ownership. Dolby products are quality-tested in multiple configurations to ensure the highest quality and reliability. Dolby brings decades of audio excellence and innovation to create spectacular experiences for moviegoers. Visit professional.dolby.com forward slash cinema for more information. And thanks again to our presenting sponsor this week, Dolby. They've been fantastic in helping us get you all this coverage from CinemaCon 2021. When we were planning our coverage strategy for this event, our team really considered what was at stake in bringing the news and in making really the effort to bring you what was relevant from an event that we understood not everybody was going to be comfortable attending. Not everybody was going to be able to attend, even if they were comfortable. That's why we really dedicated ourselves to doing as much as we could to bring you comprehensive coverage of this CinemaCon at this specific moment in the industry's history. And it would not have been possible without our partners at Dolby. A heartfelt thank you to them for their support. Now, We've got a lot to cover, and then to close out this episode, we've got some great interviews lined up representing the Independent Cinema Alliance. 
we've got their president, Rich Dottrich, who is also the CEO of Warehouse Cinemas. And then we've got an interview with the Uditoa president, John Vincent. Uditoa, as you may know, is the Drive-In Theater Owners Association. So we'll be able to close out this entire week of coverage by giving you perspectives of non-major circuit entities, associations here that come to CinemaCon and like NATO have their own priorities and their own concerns attending this event. Their input is extremely valuable to this show. We wanted to prioritize their presence. We will bring you those interviews at the conclusion of this episode. But first, Rebecca, I'm exhausted. You're really tired. You know who's not tired? Tom Cruise. He's never tired. Boundless energy, as we saw in the Paramount Studio presentation. Really, what we saw was focused on three films. We saw the first 13 minutes of Top Gun Maverick. We saw some uh, behind-the-scenes sort of stunt work going on for Mission Impossible 7. The aforementioned Tom Cruise riding a motorcycle off a cliff. Now, Daniel, I'd be curious to see whether you agree with this. Of all the studio presentations that, that I've seen this year at CinemaCon, this one to me seemed the, if not the, near the top of really positive, like excited reaction from the crowd. Well, it's showmanship. And it's something that Chris I mean, Aronson, the, the head of distribution over at Paramount, has always brought in to his CinemaCon presentations, even dating back to when he held the same role at Fox. Chris Aronson always makes it a point to be involved in the showmanship aspect of the studios he's representing. And that's carried over to his role over at Paramount that he's currently- We can't not say what his introduction was. Let's contextualize it, Rebecca, because it, it was really fun, especially after not seeing a lot of executives on presentations from Disney, for example, to have someone not only represent their studio in person, but also have fun with it. Have props. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we saw video introduction from, from Johnny Knoxville. Paramount, of course, has the next installation of the Jackass franchise. And there was this fun, you know, kind of back and forth about how Chris Aronson, dressed like Evil Knievel, is on a rocket-powered wheeled movie theater seat contraption. He does a flying jump across Caesars. And then I believe there was smoke. I believe there was a smoke machine. There was definitely showmanship to it. He rolled on to the CinemaCon stage wearing that Evil Knievel outfit, complete with cape. Sadly, he did then change into a, a normal blazer. He wasn't wearing a cape throughout the presentation. But I mean, that really set the stage for that Paramount presentation for sure. You know, it's a little bit of a tradition here. And one of the things about this business, when you look at it, is... It's a first name basis business. It really is. When it comes to distribution, exhibition, and even vendors, this community still feels like a little bit of a, has a small town feel. I know it's Hollywood. I know there's all this glamor, but really essentially, it's people that have been working together mm -hmm. for decades. So these little introductions uh, that, that Chris Harrison usually gets involved in for whichever studio he represents when he attends CinemaCon, they're always appreciated and they're like little mini traditions. And another mini tradition is having Tom Cruise go above and beyond in having a presence at this event. Tom Cruise has like a one-off, one-on relationship with CinemaCon mm -hmm. and showing up in person because he's always shooting the next big tentpole. Well, Tom Cruise, if you remember, he was the one who 
he was the first major star, to my recollection, to come out with a video saying, hey, go back to theaters, yeah. saying he was going to theaters to see Tenet. Not even not, the same studio he works film, with. Not yeah, his studio. And this was back in September. This was, I mean, he, the man, I, the man believes. It might have been believes, August, honestly. Yeah. It, it was who can keep track of tenants for these states, <laughs> uh, shifts at this point. But, but yes. If we can, no one can. That was her job for like four months. I'm sorry. We're exhausted. I'm glad we don't have to talk about tenant release dates ever again. But no, absolutely. Tom Cruise has always been very, very involved in promoting films in theaters. He often does this at CinemaCon. He'll show up in person. This year, he's still finishing up Mission Impossible 7. But this actually, Rebecca, is a little bit of a tradition that we see at this event. Whenever he's not in person, it's probably because he's shooting a Mission Impossible movie. Doing some sort of dangerous stunt. And we get to see a intricately detailed video on the stunt that he is doing. This stunt is, I mean, it's very blunt. The guy drives a motorcycle off a cliff. That's literally what it he, is. He had to do 500 takes of skydiving to learn how to skydive. He had to learn how to motocross. And then I feel like, this was in the video, and, I, and I'm gonna run this bio and Sue if you agree. When it comes time to actually film the thing, he rides the motorcycle off the cliff yes. once. And then he says, no, 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 I can do it a little bit better. And he does it five more times. I think Tom Cruise just wanted to ride a motorcycle off a cliff six times. I don't I, think he needed to do it six times. I think he just wanted to. I, I mean, listen, he's doing all of these things to get the stunts in. God, God bless him. him. Yeah, really. It, it seems very difficult, a lot more trouble than it's worth. But at the end of the day, these Mission Impossible movies, they're extremely fun. And the crowd at CinemaCon loved it. Yeah. They loved the next bit of Tom Cruise that we saw, which was... The fr I mean, we've seen a trailer before. We've seen for, some for footage. Run, I mean, Maverick, but it's very, it's it's very teaser trailery. Right. We saw a full on the first, I believe, thirteen minutes from Top yeah. Gun Maverick, yeah. and then on top of that, a trailer. I know this is a movie that Paramount is is really going all in on. This is the most excited that I have, have been about this movie. Like it took me several notches. And, and Daniel, you shared with me actually a really a really fun story that you experienced coming out of the Paramount presentation. Yeah, it's, it's always interesting coming to this event every year and getting a read of the room when it comes to what exhibitors are thinking about these titles. But this year, I actually had to go file a story while we were watching this footage. And I heard there was gonna be 13 minutes of Top Gun Maverick. I said, this is a perfect 13 minutes for me to finish my work. I'm not gonna have any difficulty finding a screen to see Top Gun Maverick once it's released. And I'm working and you can hear the soundtrack, the very like iconic this opening is credits. This soundtrack be good. It, well, it's the opening credit music that is there in the original. Mm -hmm. And one of the ushers at Caesars Palace that's working security at the event, hears the music and he turns to me because I'm, I'm in the lobby, obviously, you know, writing. And he turns to me and he goes, oh man, is that the new Top Gun movie? Is it coming out in theaters? When is it coming out? Are they showing it? The guy got excited just hearing the music. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's so wonderful. It's really what we've been talking about. The importance of connecting theatrical releases 
back to a general audience. I was telling you my first day here, I was uh, taking uh, taking an Uber ride and just mentioning CinemaCon and the guy was like, oh yeah, man, I, I saw Suicide Squad in a theater. I loved it. I can't wait to go see Shang-Chi uh, with my wife on her birthday. And we've spoken about this before, about this feels like a really revving up of the marketing machine and, and of the re-entry in a real positive, secure way now that the calendar is, is, is kind of stable of movie theaters back into cultural consciousness. And it's a topic that, as you've noticed, if you're listening to every episode this week, we often bring up with our interview guests. What is going on with the messaging about going back to the cinemas? And I think everyone has really answered, we're trying our best, but we need new movies Mm -hmm. to help push that message. And what we've seen at CinemaCon is a platform to launch this message Mm -hmm. and help amplify the facts that movie theaters are open Mm-hmm. And movies are going to come out in the imminent future. Mm-hmm. It's been so important. It's not something that I thought no. would be a key pri- like a key takeaway coming into this event, but it's a big takeaway that I've had since getting here. Well, and on the subject of mention of uh, of messaging, rather, we mentioned that there were really three films that were represented at the Paramount presentation. The third was Clifford the Big Red Dog. Shown in its entirety, Daniel, both you and I, neither of us had a chance to see that film. We did have to leave and do work, but this is a film that had been removed from the schedule. And I think, you know, maybe we're all a bit traumatized from the past 18 months, but there was this thought in the back of my head of, is this going to get sold to a streamer? As other family titles have been, as Paramount has done in the past, but they screened the thing at CinemaCon. It has been confirmed, yes, this is actually going to theaters. And it's a title that Paramount has been very bullish on. They said that the test screenings that they've shown were great, which of course they would say that, but they didn't need to mention it at all. You know what they don't need to do? They don't need to get a Toronto Film Festival screening of something called Clifford the Big Red Dog. You don't do that unless you have faith in a title. And clearly they do. And clearly they wanted to get this movie out to an audience of exhibitors so they could communicate. This movie's good. Paramount has faith in it. Whether it's good or not, we don't know. We haven't seen it yet. We haven't seen it, yes, but. The studio has faith in it. Not only that, but they have faith in it to open theatrically. They haven't updated that release date yet. I would be shocked if they don't go all in on theatrical, even if it ends up being, we don't want this to be the case, but even if it ends up being a day and date release, the way Paw Patrol, another family title did from Paramount. Family titles are tough right now with vaccination statuses for kids. We understand that. It's It's very difficult. But even then, Rebecca, Paw Patrol was able to do good business with that day and date release, behind the scenes with our contacts here in the exhibition industry, Paramount put a lot of work in activating the private cinema rental campaign with exhibitors. They were there on the ground, their exhibitor relations team, getting in touch, making sure that exhibitors had everything they needed to promote these private rentals for Paw Patrol. They've got a great strategy in place. I think that it was really reflected by their presentation today at CinemaCon. Mm -hmm. But let's move on to the second studio here because it's the last studio presentation Mm -hmm. at CinemaCon 2021, Lionsgate. Mm -hmm. Now, this presentation opened with a very interesting strategy. Lionsgate opened their 2021-2022 strategy by showcasing a trio of faith-based titles. From the Irwin brothers, who, if I recall correctly, they did the same thing in the 2019 CinemaCon, which feels like 
ages ago. <laughs> right. But they led their presentation with some of these faith-based films, or maybe it was just one, I can't quite recall, from the Irwin brothers. But the response they got from the audience was, was really quite positive. And they specifically, the executive presenting from Lionsgate, specifically mentioned the faith-based audience as being underserved. Right, and which that's is, David just, Spitz, it, the head of distribution yes. domestically over, over at Lionsgate. It speaks to another thing that we've been seeing and talking about throughout the show, which is the importance of diversity of content. Yeah, absolutely. These are different demographics, right? And we end up getting, especially living in New York City and covering film for a living, we end up getting caught up in the bubble of what New York and L.A. film writers care about. Because we care about it too, right? They're our friends. We have mutual interests. But the wide majority of people in this country also like a different set of movies. And Lionsgate is there going front and center mm -hmm. with these type of titles in their 2021 and 2022 strategy. And an audience of exhibitors mm -hmm. welcomed these titles, I think, quite effusively once they were presented. I mean, they had a trio of faith-based films that they talked about. And then also John Wick 4. I mean, my goodness. <laughs> they, I mean, I, they spoke about, not necessarily showed footage from, a very large number of films. What was the number that they gave us that since the pandemic started, they greenlit and completed, what, 18 films, wow, I think they really? said? They're really, they, they, they are hitting, and, and it's something that was echoed in yesterday's presentation from Universal, actually, right, right, about yeah. original stories, original IP, not just relying on franchises. Absolutely. And I think of those of that faith-based trio, you had titles like the Jesus Music about- um, A documentary. A documentary, right? Coming out on October 1st of this year. That's a music documentary, a concert documentary about religious music. Then you've got The Unbreakable Boy coming out in March of 2022. But I think the most important of these titles in terms of earning potential mm -hmm. for exhibitors, in terms of a cross-quadrant IP title at least in the United States, I'm not sure how it'll. How, I'm not sure how this title will export. Well, it's about American and football. Exactly. So. I'm not sure there's a, there's a big you know export potential here. But domestically, we saw footage from American Underdog, which is a biopic of the experience of, of the life story of Kurt Warner, the NFL star, who went from being a grocery store worker to being an NFL MVP and a Super Bowl winner. This movie is so high up on Lionsgate's radar that they actually are moving it to open on Christmas Day. They uh -huh. have a lot riding on this and they're very, very bullish on it. Mm -hmm. Agreed, uh, but to move on to other items in the slate, I mean, there was a, a large reaction from the crowd to an announcement of Borderlands, which is a, a video game adaptation starring Kate Blanchett. Didn't see any footage from that. One movie that we did see footage from that, Daniel, I think you and I both responded very favorably to of course. was Moonfall from Independence Day director Roland Emmerich out February of 2022. I'm just going to say um, what happens if the moon crashes into the earth? You know what? In the world of high concept, there is no higher concept than a movie called Moonfall directed by Roland Emmerich the, that is about the moon falling. The tagline for this film is... In the year 2022, the moon will come to us. 
It's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's stupid and it's brilliant. It's uh, yeah. both things. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited about I'm it. I'm so excited for this film. <laughs> so that's going to be hitting a multiplex near you on February 4th. Of course, it's coming out in February of 2022. Listen, we're laughing about it, but because it's a high concept movie, these movies play a role in the marketplace as well. And let's be honest, we have fun watching these things. I liked Geostorm. I like a good environmental disaster film. Why not? And Roland Emmerich definitely, I think, has a background in making these big, high-concept tentpole titles. That's coming out in February from Lionsgate. Let's move on to something we were a little bit more excited by. You speak for yourself on that. You're not that excited about Mr. Nicolas Cage. No, I'm equally excited about Mr. Nicolas Cage and the moon crashing into the earth. Okay, so they're at the same they're level. On, they're, they're of a type for me in terms of excitement level. So with that preface, the unbearable weight of massive talent starring Sir Nicolas Cage, a national treasure, it is going in theaters on April 22nd, 2022. Now, now Daniel, whom does Nicolas Cage play in you this film? You have to film? get his name Last right. day of CinemaCon, apologies. Whom does Nicolas Cage play in this film? Funny you should say he actually plays himself. Nicolas wow. Cage wow. playing Nicolas Cage. <laughs> Talking about high concept, this is also high concept. A little bit self-reflexive. I dig the vibe of a title like this one. I think this is going to get a lot of counterculture appeal it definitely from, seems like it has cult potential. I mean, the basic premise, as we saw in this exclusive trailer, is that Nicolas Cage wants to retire from the business. He's not doing well. He feels disrespected. A businessman, a mogul, whatever, played by Pedro Pascal, says, I'll give you a million dollars if you uh, come to my party and hang out with me. They become best friends because Pedro Pascal's character is, as he should be, a giant Nicolas Cage fan. And then cops come in and there's a heist a crime Element? Yeah, I mean, it, something goes wrong, right? But Nicolas Cage is there, and he's just, like, just, he's doing him. He's caging it up. Yeah, and, you know, it, it's, listen, it's it's not going to be a $100 million movie. It might not even be an $80, $60 million movie. But it's definitely going to be a movie that's going to get a lot of folks excited and talking about seeing it. You know, we're personally really looking forward to this title. And I have to tell you, Rebecca, the other title I'm really looking forward to from this Lionsgate presentation, John Wick 4. Mm -hmm. I like this mm -hmm. franchise. I don't like too many franchises. You guys might have surmised that from listening to the podcast. I love this John Wick franchise. The fourth one is currently in production. We haven't seen any footage from it, but it was announced during the event. Are you a big fan of John Wick? There's um, dogs in it. You like dogs. I'm less of a fan than you, but I appreciate it. I, I appreciate it. I don't want to say anything negative. This is CinemaCon. I, 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 do, I do like the franchise. Another film that we got a little bit of a glimpse of is Jennifer Lopez starring in June release, Shotgun Wedding, the second J-Lo wedding movie that has been teased at CinemaCon this year. And this one's coming out in June. So you have a J-Lo wedding movie coming out in uh -huh. February. Very interesting cast. Another one in June. That, One's a rom-com, one looks like a comedy actioner. Yeah, it's a marketing challenge that looks like a little bit of traffic to me. There might be some coordination there. We don't know. It looks know. like an excellent double feature to me. <laughs> yeah, I don't I mean, know what you're if, talking about. If you're a big J-Lo wedding movie fan, you've got a very interesting four months ahead of you between <laughs> February and June of 2022. But, uh, you know, it's great to see her back on screen. Again, we're getting movies coming out, different types of movies, 
It's just refreshing to see all this content being out. We have no idea if any of these movies are going to be good. We have no clue. For all you know, we might end up hating all of them. But we, I'm just glad they're out there. We don't, we don't know that they're going to be good. We don't know how much money they're going to make. No clue. We know that there are enough of them across a wide variety of, of genre and just budget limit. We know that some of this is going to hit. And that's the important part. At least that there's going to be films and new films coming out. And you might hear this like weird sense of relief in our voice as you listen to us. You're listening to two people whose jobs have been talking about the same exact movies for two and a half years. We've spent 30 months talking about the same 30 to 40 movies. We're just really excited that there's something new in the schedule. I think the rest of the industry is as well. I think movie movie fans are as well. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, I think that's a, that's a great way to look at it. But ending this big event, I think it's fair to say it went out in a bang. We had a very big luncheon sponsored by the LA Times featuring uh, some high-profile players in this industry. We had Patty Jenkins, the filmmaker behind the Wonder Woman movies. We had Mark Zarati, the CEO of Cinemark. Who, who by the way, got a very, uh, a very lovely moving tribute at the Lionsgate presentation in recognition of the fact that he is retiring from the CEO position of Cinemark at the end of this year, though he will remain on the board. Absolutely. And we had our, our former guest here this week, Rolando Rodriguez, CEO of Marcus Theatres, and we opened the episode talking about Chris Aronson's theatrics at CinemaCon, the head of domestic theatrical distribution at that studio. He was also at this panel, this luncheon panel, which was a little spicy. If you're familiar with Chris Aronson, you can guess. You're going to get a good quote. You're going to get a good quote. But I think we can both agree that the best quotes, or at least the quotes that got the most raucous of applause and approval from the audience, came from Ms. Jenkins. Specifically, I mean, this is obviously her her Wonder Woman 1984 came out day and date on Christmas Day. It was one of the first films to do that of the pandemic era. She spoke about the decision-making processes behind that, of what that experience was like. She said that it was a, a, a heartbreaking experience. She said it was the best of no good options. Yeah, she didn't the want to best delay of the bad film. options. She didn't want to delay the film for two years. Yeah. But then, you know, things got, she does not like day and date. No, Patty what was the quote? What, what did she say exactly at this event? Uh, she said it was painful to watch Wonder Woman 84 not go to the big screen experience, but it was a choice that was the right choice for all of us. A lot of conversations took place. But then she said, quote, no, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of day and date, and I hope to avoid it forever. It's a very interesting statement from the filmmaker whose next film is going to be for Disney. We got to end this with another quote. I think this has been, uh, and I hope you agree, it's been fun for us to record the series, and it's really helped us, I think, to digest our own takeaways from CinemaCon. It's just a wonderful button to end on, I think, this quote from Patty Jenkins. She said, I don't understand why we're talking about throwing, and in brackets here, the big screen experience away for 700 different streaming services that there's no room for in the marketplace. It's crazy to me. One studio should plant a flag and make a huge movie just for the theatrical experience, and filmmakers will go there as a result. Well, judging from the studios that actually came to CinemaCon, that actually put in the time, effort, and interest 
to communicate and chart a course for the future of theatrical exhibition, I think there are several studios that would love to work with Ms. Jenkins in the future. I'll be very curious to see what those decisions in her career are going to be in the coming months and years. On behalf of Rebecca and myself, thank you so much for joining us this week. We've got two great interviews to close up this week's worth of coverage. First off, we've got the ICA, the Independent Cinema Alliance president, Rich Dautridge, here joining us on the podcast. Rich Dautridge, the president of the ICA, the Independent Cinema Alliance, thank you so much for joining us here in the daily edition of our box office podcast at CinemaCon. It's great to see you. Congratulations on the, on the new role here at the ICA. I know you've been a member of the ICA for some time now. Let's start with a little bit of background about this organization for our listeners who may be interested in joining but want to find out a bit more. Could you tell us more about the Independent Cinema Alliance and the benefits it brings to independent operators in the industry? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you, Daniel, for having us back. So the ICA started about three years ago, I don't know the exact date, I joined about halfway through. And so it's a new organization. We represent independent cinema, and that is it. So we've really worked hard over the last couple years to really get the word out there about what the ICA is doing and, and advocating for independent cinemas. We have about 5,500 screens now that we represent, which is about, I think, 12% of the industry, and there's still ways to go. The independents comprise of about 20% of the industry as far as screen count. And so our goal really, I mean, we, we have things broken up. Uh, we've been through some strategic planning recently, so I'll go through that if you want. Sure. Really, the two big thrusts that we're focused on is what we call the ICA marketplace, which is essentially our buying group. Uh, so our goal is to get programs for independent cinemas to save them money on the vendor side and then also on the marketing side, things to generate revenue. So really the goal for that is to save independents money or to increase their, their top line revenue. That oftentimes simply pays for the dues. Uh, even though our dues are very reasonable, it more than pays for dues. So we're working hard with that. The other big thrust we have is what we call studio relations. So it's all things working with our partners in distribution, really trying to have a dialogue around probably the best way to put it is a healthy ecosystem, right? Mm, so right. we know things are changing. We know they're in a situation and have their own stakeholders. We have our own our stakeholders. So we're really having those dialogues and really pushing that forward. Uh, Bill Campbell, uh, who's the chairman of the board, also leads that team. The other four I'll just mention quickly. We have a membership team run by Marco Mira, uh, really just trying to get, again, that 5,500 screen count up to um, hopefully about 10,000 screens. We have a marketing team, uh, which I chair, uh, we're just working on things like Cinema Week, partnered with Brandon Jones on that and really pushed hard to, to make that successful as one of the stakeholders. The education team run by Gina DeSanto. She is basically leads our ICA live calls. Really, it's, a, it's an opportunity for us to get together to engage with one another as independents. She sort of has a rhythm around a webinar one week and then two weeks later, she'll have sort of an update on all the things we're working on for the members. And then lastly, there's an ops finance team that is run by Todd Halstead. He is the executive director and the only paid, by the way, person on the ICA team. All the rest of us are volunteers. Yeah, no, it's a great organization that basically gives independent operators the strength and numbers that their colleagues in the more corporate chains already have when it comes to buying equipment, buying supplies, or even negotiating with studios, right? You're, you're there 
basically on a partner level, assisting these very, you know, complicated sort of obtuse industry steps for these cinemas. Yeah, and it's it's not easy, especially what I mentioned early on. The ICA marketplace, there's a heavy lift there as far as getting good programs for our team. But yeah, studio relations is a conversation. You know, sometimes we respectfully disagree and try to move things forward. Again, from that healthy ecosystem perspective. So I think we, we're trying to understand where they're coming from and vice versa, right? So instead of it being a one-way conversation, we're talking about things like efficiencies, right? So independence, while we might be 20% of the industry, we understand and we realize that we are scattershot, if you will. It's difficult for our partners in distribution from a marketing perspective, for example, to talk individually to all the different independents. It's just not possible. There's not enough hours in the day and the staffing is just not there from the studio side. So that's one of many examples of the key word is efficiency. How do we create efficiencies for that the exhibitor relation folks at the studios to interface with the ICA members and hopefully get you know better terms if you will mm -hmm. but really the key thing for our, our relationship with studios is just flexibility we want flexibility in things like stacking things like availability on prints and there's a long list of those things which is very very different than the major circuits out there so we have right. a different sort of agenda in that regard no, and even when you talk about the equipment and getting the right partners for that marketplace side, you mentioned Bill Campbell, who was an important figure in helping independent cinemas go digital. What was that? How can it be really 15, 20 years ago that he went through these campaigns? And of course, the background of the cinema buying group now sort of melded into these ICA priorities. Could you tell us a little bit about those partnerships you have on that marketplace side? Yeah, so we have a couple of vendors that we have you know, over the years, last couple of years, the ones that Bill brought with him. And, and, and you're right, Bill has a tremendous amount of experience and has relationships there. And as chairman of the board, he has influence on that. Joel Davis is actually running that team from Premier Cinemas, mm -hmm. the ICA Marketplace team. So we have LTI, for example, is, is a light bulb manufacturer. We have a great deal with LTI uh, that our members can take advantage of. We're working hard to what we call <laughs> develop these core programs, things like credit card processing, things like concession deals, things like the major things that really move our, our needle as far as bottom line. We have goals around that on a quarterly basis on the core side. And then we're just really things like just discounts at things at major box stores, for example. We're trying to pull together as many of those programs as we can. And if you go to our website, cinemalliance.org, you can see all of the different programs we have, some of which we're in the middle of renewing. But Joel Davis is doing a great job from Premier. Again, this is an industry of relationships, right? So like he has a, a lot of relationships with his years of experience, and including Bill Campbell and Todd and uh, Gina and everyone on the team, really trying to leverage those relationships. But again, I think the conversations we're trying to have is not give us your best price. It has to be a cost or a price mm. that's still sustainable for the vendor, right? So it's right. a win-win conversation, a healthy ecosystem conversation. That's really what independents are trying to do. Because at the end of the day, we want those programs to be renewed year over year over year. So our, our members get a better deal, but our vendors, our partners actually can still make a profit margin as well. Of course. Well, part of being able to be in these conversations is, of course, having the liquidity to be able to have these discussions. That SVOG funding was surprisingly difficult to get a hold of. That was an issue that I know our colleagues at NATO were very involved in securing and then making sure that cinemas were able to earn that money. Could you give us a little bit of background on that SVOG situation, where independents are right now, for those of our listeners who may not be caught up with the saga? Yeah, I think NATO, John, Jackie, Esther, everyone who was really deeply involved in the SVOG did a great job. 
and it was a heavy lift. It was bolting on to an existing bill. And so that was the strategy a little bit after, obviously, the bill was put together by the, uh, the shutter venues. Where we are now is I think most people have been funded or at least notified. We get stats every day from NATO. I don't know the exact stats of independence. I will say just anecdotally, we've most people on our ICA live calls have indicated that they've gotten it, assuming they've qualified. So I think it's rolled out. Uh, it did take a while, but that's sometimes what happens in government. You know, the SBA is bogged down with other things. And so, but I think Jackie and Esther in particular from NATO just did a great job. They were bulldogs when it came to, to getting with, with the SBA. They had, they had uh, daily calls at one point. Now it's like weekly calls. But yeah, I think we at the ICA, we have a standing call once a month with John and right now Rolando just to talk about what independents are doing, what we're doing at the ICA, what their initiatives are to make sure we're on the same page. So when it came to the SVOG initiative, we really wanted to support them, wanted them to take the point on it. Um, you know, Government advocacy, NATO does an amazing job for. We just really asked the question, what can we do to help in, in those dialogues? And when possible, we could come back to our members and give them an update or encourage them to do one thing or the other. So yeah, I think it's it's mostly been funded, I believe. The numbers look like they get better, better every week. So, um, but there's still those out there that are not funded. And sure, liquidity in those cases is actually very, very difficult. Absolutely. And I think that leads into the next question we had. It really has to do with some of your top priorities at the ICA as we head into the fall and winter of 2021. Of course, if we look back last year, around late August, early September, we had some hope coming into those months because Tenet was about to come out. Of course, the reality was very different. Having that experience, that background of what we went through last year, what are your top priorities at the ICA coming into these fall months? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's why we've spent so much time at the ICA in the last really three or four months, just really strategizing. Now, did we know that Delta was going to come around? No. But I think fundamentally, it's a what we have right now is we have a sort of a three-year picture, a one-year goal, and then we have what we call 90 days initiatives or, or strategic objectives. So for this year, I can say, again, the push is really strengthening the relationship with distribution. Like we really want to have those dialogues. We are working hard. We have some deadlines around this for our own purpose. By the end of September 30th, we are raising money to prepare a letter to the Department of Justice to actually ask permission to have those conversations to negotiate essentially on behalf of members. That is a major initiative. Our, our studio relations team led by Bill Campbell meeting once every two weeks, just unpacking that. We have a consultant who's an attorney and a professor at the University of Arizona his name is Barack Orbach. He is an expert on all things antitrust. And so working hard to raise those funds and then be able to get that letter going. We have a law firm picked out. And I know NATO, again, that's one of the conversations that NATO and I are having and Bill and Todd and John and, and Rolando is let's make sure that we're doing it in step with each other, right? So we have a certain set of um, objectives and so do they. So I would say that DOJ letter is, is a major initiative for us. And then parallel to that, we're really trying to just reach out to distribution and, and have those conversations with the leadership and say, look, here's who we are, here's who we represent, here are our challenges, let's try to work through these things, you know, from a relationship perspective. And then hopefully in parallel, we'll end up at a place where we can actually have fruitful conversations around those challenges, not just ideas. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I'm trying hard to do is, you know, not talk so much. Like, let's not talk about these issues week and month and year over year over year. Let's actually get to a place and set some goals for ourselves to make it 
create a healthier ecosystem for exhibitors and for distribution. The other thing we're doing is each team has their own strategic objectives, but I would say, again, the ICA marketplace is a big initiative. Like, we want to show up at the end of this year, the end of 2021, and have a lot of core programs that are going to save them money or increase revenue, and then a bunch of other programs that just basically you know, as a whole, they will save tens of thousands of dollars is our goal. So again, Joel Davis is working really hard on that. Those are the two big thrusts. There's some other objectives around education and marketing and things like that. But really at the end of the day, I think our members have said they need, you know, better relationships somehow, some way with distribution because they're just small and they can't have those conversations directly. And on the other side is the ICA marketplace. I think if we strengthen those two pillars of our organization, I think we'll be in good shape. And to close up this conversation, looking at the big picture, there's a lot of threats, a lot of challenges, a lot of obstacles, obviously, that not only this industry, but any out-of-home entertainment destination is facing while still in this pandemic. I was about to say as we come out of this pandemic, but it looks like we've still got some ways to go, unfortunately. What, in your opinion, is the future of independent cinema owners in the United States? Oh, that's a good question. I think we're a resilient group. You know, when Bill Campbell asked me to be on the board, I remember in Dallas at a board meeting, one of the things I remember saying is, I like independence because we're scrappy. And that might seem like a basic term or something, but I think, you know, we're entrepreneurs. A lot of times it's multi-generational. So I think independent cinemas, my goal, my dream, if you will, is to make it healthier than it is today. And I think some of those conversations that we've had in the past, namely with distribution, namely with our studio partners, it, we just have to change sort of the frame of the question and come at it from a more of a partnership perspective. And, and that's easy to say, harder to do. But personally, you know, as an independent cinema owner ourselves with Warehouse Cinemas, you know, we're opening another location here in the next about two months. So we'll have our second location and we have a third location we'll be announcing soon. So for us, at least at Warehouse Cinemas, we feel good about the industry. We think that at some point the right balance will be struck between a exclusive window when it comes to theatrical and that downstream income for distribution, which, by the way, they have stakeholders that they have to take care of. They mm -hmm. have, you know, their stock price is very, very important to them. But what's the balance there? I think profitability still matters, not just subscriptions to their you know, digital platforms. But I think if exhibitors, independent exhibitors specifically, really take a hard look at their marketing, when I say marketing, I'm almost also speaking of their product, right? So the product that they have, I think we really need to have a hard look. And again, the ICA marketplace hopefully can pull together a program for things like recliners. Like we really have to get our independent cinemas converted to recliners, for example, and many, many, many other things to give consumers a compelling reason to get out of the house. I don't think we're at war with studios. I don't think we're at war with large circuits. I think we're at war with and other entertainment options mm. that could take us away from the fun and sort of life-changing two-hour experience getting out of the house. I think it's better for mental health. I think it's, there's so many reasons that getting out of the house and going to the cinema. So if independents continue to have these sort of conversations with themselves about how do we increase our product to make it a compelling reason to get out of the house, I think we'll be totally fine. You know, pricing goes into that, you know, other amenities like food and beverage, all those things go into it, but it needs to sort of adapt beyond just the popcorn and show the movie. At the end of the day, I think the popcorn and the movie are the commodity side of it. I think the experience is really what's going to set us apart and get people to come out to the movies and 
you know, support their independent cinemas. Well, Rich, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. And best of luck uh, with the ICA as we move forward into the year. For our colleagues and listeners who want to find out more about the ICA, where can they do so? They can go to cinemaalliance.org. We are doing our renewals for membership, so please consider doing that. And then also we have an ICA Action Fund, as I mentioned, the DOJ. There's also a link on the homepage if you'd like to donate to that. And there's a suggested donation for the ICA Action Fund. So cinemaalliance.org. And thank you once again to Rich Dottrich, the president of the Independent Cinema Alliance and the CEO of Warehouse Cinemas. We've got one more interview left. It's with the United Drive-In Theaters Owners Association president, John Vincent, talking about the reality the drive-ins are living through right now. Now, it's interesting because we got a lot of press coverage all year about how this is a big renaissance for drive-ins. They're doing this great business. The reality, however, is a little bit more nuanced. I am so excited to share these last little bit of insights with you this week, and we will catch up with you again next Thursday for another weekly edition of the Box Office Podcast. John, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to chat once again. I know you guys have been busy. Well, you're busy every summer, but uh, probably a little bit busier the last couple of summers than in recent memory. Let's start with that. Could you walk us through what 2020 meant for the drive-in industry as obviously the entire global cinema sector was adjusting to a different reality? Absolutely, Daniel, and thanks for having me. The drive-in operators in the United States were happy to carry the flag for exhibition, being that the indoor theaters were largely either closed or subject to tightening restrictions and lack of new product and lack of customers, myself included. I am what we call an amphibious operator. I have both a drive-in and a cinemas, and many drive-in operators are also uh, what we call amphibious. So I saw both sides of the coin. And what we had for 2020 was a little bit of a across the spectrum. There was a little bit of fake news and how, you know, it was a resurgence of drive-ins. Well, not necessarily so, because many the areas that had drive-ins, they were appreciated by the customers and visited by their customers for years. I've been in this business since 1987. The worst summer of attendance was 1987, the year I started. And we saw the recovery begin in the early 90s, in 1993 with Jurassic Park. So, you know, that there's that side of it. I mean, yes, we did get a lot of media attention across the gamut, national media, local media, you name it. And we also, you know, for a spell, we're the powerhouse grocers of the industry. <laughs> you know, I mean, we've always been decent grocers in our own right, many of us. So, but it was with the lack of any, you know, subsidy of indoor grosses, you know, for the, during the height of COVID restrictions, we were pretty much it, carrying much of the uh, top grossing positions. But that being said, it wasn't necessarily a big boon for drive-ins. My, we were down mine because we were at 40% capacity and you didn't have new product. You had to tackle with all these regular business restrictions that every other business had to deal with, right? Yes, exactly, which meant increased staffing. And also for our snack bar meant we went to window service instead of the bulk cafeteria style, being able to feed everyone much more efficiently with the prior to COVID situation to handing food and drinks outside a window, which was not very efficient. 
So, you know, we lost some concession sales and we lost capacity. And on the whole, it wasn't, you know, the gangbuster summer that many might believe. You know, but I'm one drive-in. There were many drive-ins that did see increased business. There were many drive-ins, especially in the rural areas, that did not see increased business. But nonetheless, you know, coming at it from both sides, my indoor cinema was entirely closed for 16 months. So as much as, you know, we were perhaps not doing as well as the media portrayed, it's still we were open and we were doing business, you know, and I feel for my indoor counterparts and in and other venues too of course the acting venues and other uh, concerts and nightclubs and stuff you know they were just at zero you know or, or really pretty close to it so we were happy to provide place for, for people to something for people to do you know when they couldn't really didn't have much other options so that made pretty much every operator in their own right happy, you know, to make people happy. That's the business we're in anyway. But <laughs> now, now skip ahead to 2021. What's been the experience for drive-in so far this year and how has it differed from the experience you guys had this equivalent period back in 2020? Well, I can say it's, to be blunt, it's been disappointing. We are not above last year here in my drive-in. Many are not. And if there's one lesson that comes out of this whole thing is we need a robust theatrical industry and a robust theatrical window, just like the indoor counterparts. As much as, you know, people come to the drive-in for the experience, we're finding that in this day and age, we, well, we always have, it's always been about the movies and new quality movies with a robust theatrical window will bring people into indoor theaters and drive-ins alike. And we know the various studios have, you know, experimented with some COVID models. And, you know, my personal experience at my personal theaters, and especially the drive-in, has shown that if they're available for free on the services, it does, in fact, hurt attendance. And it seems to really hurt it after the opening weekend. That's when it, we're seeing our own internal data here at my particular drive, and we're seeing numbers drop off really fast when it's available for day and date on the other services. Um, I think many drive-ins are probably in the same position. There are a few in, near some metro areas that are, you know, over, uh, let's say, 2020 or over 2019. It's harder to, like me, you're a single screen and it's hard to make some of those longer commitments that the studios uh, requested. So when you're single screen, it's tough to tie up a screen for three weeks, you know, and that was a case with, you know, a title this summer. So many, including myself, passed on that title. So, you know, that hurts, but in it less so for the ones that are two or three screens because they can insulate themselves against those decisions. No, especially when that title that you mentioned needs a big commitment is also available at home at the same day. When you either yeah, have a reduced yeah. or non-existent exclusivity, I mean, you really have to wonder if the people driving these terms are on the same page on what this industry means to everyone around the world. Yeah, exactly. So I would say that there's a lot of similarities between the drive-ins and the indoor counterparts, much more than people would you know maybe surmise you know and it's for for drive-ins it's we did do quite well with the retro movies last year myself we're seeing that's definitely softening this year we're not seeing them come out like they did prior years to the uh to the retros so you know it, it's 
you know, we look forward to all life, everyone does, really, truly getting back to normal. And, you know, that includes all theatrical and includes returning to some kind of a robust window. And Rebecca, these are, these are interesting insights. We've been talking about the industry and, and reading a lot of insights on what the future of cinemas can be. John, I really appreciate your perspectives because when I get the most furious in reading about this industry is this assumption that, well, COVID hit, people can just go see the movies at the drive-in. And the drive-ins are going to be the immediate turnkey solution to saving the cinema industry, and that's all we need. And by the way, those that can't open a drive-in, they can just open a pop-up drive-in, solution done. Of course, it's not really that simple. Never mind that those are expensive to set up, aside from everything else. (laughs) And the fact that, hey, you know, you may be playing with different rules depending on if you are what you call an authentic drive-in, and we'll go into that designation in a little bit, John, or alternatively, Maybe you have a different set of rules if you are a big box chain store that decides to put an inflatable screen on your parking lot. What is the distinction between, say, these fly-by-night drive-ins and the drive-ins that have been here for decades? Why make that authentic drive-in designation? Sure. You know, there's a host of differences, and drive-ins have had a long history of when they're constructed, they generally have been constructed correctly. I mean, it's just like in indoor cinemas where you have to get uh, zoning or planning board permissions. You have to conform the building codes. You have to conform the restroom counts. You have to, you know, have all the proper surveys done and everything else, regulatory authorities and, and all that. And that was, we looked at here in Wellfleet expanding uh, the drive-in to two screens. And we have a county commission regulation that says, any outdoor use or increase thereof of over 40,000 square feet, which is just shy of an acre, is a development of regional impact, which we looked at it and was going to invoke a quarter million dollar traffic light, a hundred thousand dollar turtle study, all these. Wait, a, 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 I turtles, just, a turtle yeah, study? Yeah, because we I'm have sorry. a wetland, we have wetland where there's, there's turtles that are, I'm not being, it's just, that's no, just a small to token example. But... No, no, it's, it's. There's this big regulatory environment, and this is true across most of the United States. If you generally talk to the drive-ins, that the authentic drive-ins that have opened across the United States, and the zoning board uh, hearings they have to go to, the building codes they have to meet, it's not cheap. You know, and, and most authentic drive-ins have basically a fast food restaurant, you know, which by the time you're done with commercial-grade equipment, with commercial-grade UL 300 hood system, which is $50,000, which in many areas you might need a sprinkler system. You know, you got to have, you know, 18 ladies room toilets, you know, maybe nine men's, you know, because in many areas it's double the ladies, rightly so. I'm just giving little tiny tidbits of what's involved in a building an authentic drive-in. And this is was true all the way back to the late 30s, 40s, and 50s. And yeah, when COVID hit and all of a sudden you see all these these so-called pop-ups coming up across the United States, many in fields and many not doing cinema correctly with uh, the video screens, which might look flashy and colorful, but they don't meet DCI specification. The color gamut's not there. Everything's not there. The, the layout's flat. Were these pop-ups regulated in any way in terms of hitting the specifications that an authentic drive-in would have to hit? Two on Cape Cod that were done through on-town properties, so they can somehow convince the town to do it so that exempted them from the zoning. 
You know, you got to love the way that works. Traffic studies, you know, Massachusetts, you generate more than 200 vehicles out of a curb cut. You're supposed to get a permit from the Massachusetts Environment Protection Agency. I mean, I could go down the line of these things. We're just glossed over with COVID and you need to do, you know, let's do a pop up and, oh, okay, we'll just look the other way. You mean all that stuff I wanted to do over 30 years? I, you know, I mean, now I can do it. Not that I'm you know, the world is in a different place. We get it, you know. What I want to chime in with here is that I find it absolutely unacceptable that business owners that have been doing this for decades have to contend with restrictions that, let's be fair, everybody's contending with, that's fine. Meanwhile, you're getting an influx of competitors that get to cut corners. And they get to cut corners with city restrictions. They get to cut corners with the technical specifications. And do they get the cut corners with programming and the terms in that programming through it being through a different designation, right? Exactly, yeah. When you're programming library content, the consumer isn't going to know what's a DCI print and what's coming out of, let's say, a DVD projection. And I'd like to, and I'd like to clarify here too, or, or really, I should say, ask for clarification. When you talk about these pop-up drive-ins that have, well, popped up, <laughs> We're looking at a lot of major chains like Marcus, like B&B that have, you know, put them up in their parking lots and that have gotten, these are established exhibition figures. And then Daniel, you alluded to it earlier in the podcast, you have people like Walmart lending out their space and arenas. Is there a difference really there among the pop-up drive-in space, among the people, the actual exhibitors, and then the people who are kind of, I don't want to say interlopers, but I will. Yeah, having an indoor theater myself, I mean, I could certainly could feel for, and I probably would have done it had I not had the drive-in. You know, it's one thing to have people who are involved in the industry know what DCI specification is, know how to put on a show, make sure the lighting's right, which is generally all the indoor exhibitors. And, and some of those B&B theaters has a drive-in, you know. So I was happy to see the, the indoor theaters do what they needed to do to get some revenue and stay in business. And we were happy to have our indoor counterparts do it. What really irked, irked us was the parks and recreation and or even like parks and recreation, but loaning it out to a third party. And, you know, there's one studio that will allow these show venues to do product that we don't have access to, because as far as ours is concerned, it's in the vault. But as far as these other venues are concerned, they can have it willy nilly. So I have customers saying, why can't you do this very popular cartoon from 10 years ago? They're doing it up the street at the park there. I can't because they say that the, it's out of release for theatrical. But that is theatrical. Are the studios not coming and saying, whoa, 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 what is this? Well, no, they're getting licenses because they're you know, either under the guise of a nonprofit or whatever have you, or the guise of Parks and Recreation, and they have a wider access to library content from certain studios versus us. But some studios are better than others, and I don't want to name names, but you know, that was particularly infuriating when here we have a genuine, authentic experience with all the proper you know, sound, light, everything, and we can't play that movie from 10, 20, 30 years ago, but these venues that really are subpar in terms of image quality and everything else can. So, and that was true indoor and out, you know, the indoors also did not have access to those titles as well. So how have things changed? I mean, 2020, certainly bigger attendance, not across the board, but in a large amount of drive-ins, even if we didn't have the great drive-in resurgence that was so great for so many people's headlines and SEOs. This year, obviously, drive-ins like everyone else waiting on content. 
what do you feel or do you feel there is maybe a longer term impact upon the authentic drive-in ecosystem moving forward over the next couple of years as people have may who have never been to one have maybe been reintroduced because that was their only option. Exactly. And we think that, you know, the one lesson that came out of this was we really either are underselling ourselves or not giving ourselves enough credit. And we all have these beautiful venues done right, done with the right ramping, the right screen size and everything else. And we haven't really been promoting it very well to the consumer space. Fast forward to our effort this year in conjunction with Boost Division of Box Office, we're doing an authentic drive-in website. And it's going to be a central clearing place for at first UTOA members. And we're hoping to expand our UTOA membership, United Drive-In Theater owners, to include nearly all drive-ins across the United States. And this will be a nice clearinghouse for those to find either if they're traveling or even if they just want to find their own local show times. To, and it's going to expouse, or it does, it's, it's up and running. It's going to expouse the positive aspects of unauthentic drive-in versus, you know, the so-called pop-up. I mean, I, I think we did a piece pre-COVID where it, we might have been speaking to you, John, actually, about how the drive-in experience really kind of fits the millennial Gen Z movie-going experience of it has to be an event. You know, you can take photos of yourselves. You can talk. It's it's really more of a, I don't necessarily want to say party atmosphere, but a little bit like that. It's more social than going to an indoor theater. So hopefully uh, we'll see this resurgence continue on a bit. I think we will. I mean, I think, you know, current conditions this summer aside, I am very bullish on the on the theatrical industry on the whole, but it, also in the drive-in industry. I mean, it's a great way to see a movie. It's memorable, eventful. You know, everyone growing up remembers the first time they went to a drive-in. We see it on, you know, the kids' faces, you know, parents' faces when I go down there at night. And, and you're right, with Gen Z and millennials, they love it. So I don't, see it fading into a, a boomer thing or whatever have you, you know, or Gen X. They were largely most, you know, we went from 5,000 drive-ins, I think, down to 1,000 by the time Gen X of my generation was, you know, had their licenses. I was fortunate enough before I had any involvement in this drive-in to attend as a teenager. But, you know, many areas across the United States, they were largely gone by Gen X had matured. So it probably really was the boomers of the, the last generation that really had them you know, within 100 miles of most United States. Sadly, we're not there right now. That would be ideal to have, you know, maybe another 500 drive-ins across the United States evenly spread out in areas that don't have them. That would be ideal. But it's very costly to build an authentic drive-in. And we've had a few come online this year. So, you know, there certainly is an appetite, and I think they'll do quite well. You're just never probably going to see the massive build-out that you might have seen with indoor cinemas, multiplexes, and the like in the last 20, 30 years. So, John, this summer, going on after the momentum and the press coverage of last summer, the UDATOA is organizing a special campaign in collaboration with the Independent Cinema Alliance. Could you tell us a little bit about that and, and some of the details that audience members can expect from this campaign? Well, the studio Sony Pictures releasing has always been exhibitor friendly, and they also are a big believer in the theatrical experience and, and also the window. And we certainly appreciate that, both as an indoor operator and as a drive-in. And it's very nice for them to acknowledge the importance of independent theatrical exhibition with some specific previews and pre-show content and other things geared toward the independent operator. 
that is truly appreciated and well received by our customers. Our customers like that. They know we're independently owned and operated. They know it's you know it's it's a labor of love. And when they see these pre-show content or a preview that says "see it in a local independent theater near you" as a tagline at the end, by example, the customers even appreciate that because hey, they're rooting for the small guy versus you know the big nothing but the big chains. Many of the big chains have had their own taglines at the end of trailers for years, and it's nice now to see that in the independent space. And we certainly appreciate Sony Pictures releasing and uh, their efforts to shine a spotlight on the independents.